Now, I know how you love to be the centre of attention. You love it. You really do. And I know how much you nagged and nagged and nagged your publisher and the Wheeler Centre to celebrate your birthday in this way. <laughs> I mean, really. Some of the more excessive demands had to be ironed out. She wanted to be carried in by a phalanx of muscular footballers. We, we weeded that one out. This, uh, she wanted a theatre that was highly elaborate and designed by a famous architect. So obviously we went with her on that one. Um, do you feel a bit as though you're owned by a nation sometimes? Not exactly owned, but people do come up to me in the street and say, I love you. <laughs> I mean, like, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. It's, well, I, I, I'm hesitating to say embarrassing. It's not, I mean, it's kind of fabulous. You know, everybody wants to be loved, but it doesn't often happen that someone comes up to you in the supermarket and, and, and says that to you. But um, no, no, I don't. Don't you answer, give a serious answer? No, I don't feel owned. So to have your birthday something that people desperately want to commemorate in some way. And I must say, I felt quite nervous about this evening because I wanted to make it perfect. You know, I want to make it great for the occasion. What, in case I die? No. Is that It's sort of not really about you at all, actually. Yeah. Because I think you'll be fine. Yeah. But there's this sort of... People want to express things. A bit, they want to tell you things and demonstrate the role that you've played in their lives. I mean, I just even listening to Jen just now, and I just thought with a bit of a start. I can actually remember where I was when I read a heap of your books as well. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I couldn't say that for every book that I've read. Mm. But there's something about reading you that makes you possibly a better observer even while you're reading. The way that you write reminds me how to be a better observer. And that's why I think I can remember where I was when I read a lot of your work. Mm. So, but. The corollary of that is that we've all got this kind of um, huge stake in you. So, <laughs> which, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is that weird? Does it feel strange? Well, well see, I don't go around all that much anymore. I stay home a lot, and that might be a good idea, judging <laughs> by what you were saying. <laughs> Look, it probably is prudent, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> no, well, for years... Um, I used to like the idea that nobody recognised me. I mean, I, I, I don't look kind of flamboyant or I don't wear very interesting clothes or anything. And, and, and so um, I, I felt that I could go about the world. And that was particularly useful when I used to do um, work, for example, in courts or in situations where it would be m more comfortable for all concerned if nobody knew there was someone there who was with a notebook, but um, I, I, yeah, I, I also hate photos of me. I really can't stand them. I, f I think that I'm the most unphotogenic person in the world, and um, so I, I sort of tend to turn away when somebody comes up to me with a camera, and I, I used to think that I could get away with that, but, you know, it doesn't work. You're quite but, interested in photographs of other things and other people, aren't you? you yeah, but that's okay. I mean, you know, that's got nothing to do with me. Hey, talking about nothing to do with me, listening to Jennifer read that, that passage from the children's bark reminded me of something 
really strange about that book, which is, oh, this probably sounds really weird, but I sort of can't believe I wrote it. I, I think um, people often say to me, do, do you ever read your, your work again? And I very rarely do, unless I'm you know, going to look something up that I want to use or quote. But uh, I've noticed this, that if I pick up the children's bark and just you know, casually look at a page, I think, oh, that's actually really good. <laughs> I, I don't, and I don't remember writing it. You see, most of the things I've published, written and published, I, I do remember. I do remember um, writing them because of you know the, the torture that I went through in order to. to so write what is them. it about that one? That well, look, I don't know. I puzzle over it, and I mean, I'm, I, I actually I like it the best of all my books. Well, I mean, no, wait a minute. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's the best thing I ever wrote. But I just think, how did I write that? You know, and I look at it, and I think. It's good in a way that I, I don't know how I figured out how to do it. You know, the, the jump between, I mean, technically as a piece of writing, between that monkey grip and uh, my second little book, which was sort of like a sort of flop, and, and then this third one, I, I, I don't know, where did I figure out how, how to do that stuff? Like um, how I, I always notice how in one sentence I'll jump from one person's point of view to another one. And it just, come, it just kind of flows out. I think, how did I do that? But one time I, um, I was torturing myself over some other book I was trying to write, and <laughs> I, I had this little couch in my workroom, and I occasionally would sort of fling myself on it in an access of, of frustration. And I think, how am I, I don't know how I'm going to write this book. I, I can't do it. I'm no good. And on one particular occasion, I did that, and I kind of flung myself back, and, and I saw on the little bookshelf next to the couch, a, a, a notebook like was just sticking out, like an exercise book, and I thought, oh, what's that? And I sort of <laughs> pulled, pulled it off the shelf and opened it up, and it was a diary that I had kept while I was writing The Children's Bark, right. probably 10 years earlier. And there it was, the same old whinging and moaning, God, how can I write this book? I can't, I've got these characters. How do I make them? What's going to happen? Is, is, is Athena going to run away with Philip? And what's, what's going to happen with the kids? And I, I, I don't know how to do this. And, and it was kind of a relief to think huh. that, um, you know, because I always had this idea that the children's bark had somehow kind of rolled out of me or, you know, it sprung fully armed from the head of Zeus, as they say in the classics. But um, it didn't, you know, I slogged away at it. But it's I don't, like I don't, childbirth. Yeah. You yeah. only keep doing it because you sort of forget. Yeah, you would never do it again if you remembered it. Yeah. About, I think it was maybe nearly 10 years ago now, um, I was a judge on the Stella Prize and then they asked me to make a speech at the event. And I was a bit kind of like, uh, what would I say? It's something like that. And the organiser said, well, we'll send you Helen Garner's speech from last year if you want. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> right. No, Nobody well, asked for my permission. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great. That should be helpful because, you know, if you're worried about your tennis game, what you really want is, you know, a practice hit with Roger Federer. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But, I mean, and that speech, bloody excellent speech. I mean, it's not one of your more famous published works, but I wanted to read you a little bit from the beginning of this speech, because I remember keeping it because I thought it was fabulous. Anyway, you open your speech at the Stella Prize, which is the inaugural Stella Prize, by saying, I'm not going to bore you about why, you know, a women's prize for writing is a good idea. You say, 
I'd rather talk in a grandmotherly way about writing and how ghastly it is. <laughs> about the bizarre effects of prizes on people's idea of their own worth. And about the undeniable fact that every girl who writes needs a bucket of cash to be thrown over her at least once in her life so she can soldier on, even maybe feel for a while that it's been worth the torture. <laughs> well, yeah, I endorse that, yeah. <laughs> and reading through your diaries, you know, there's so much that is like that little exercise book that you picked out of the shelf and used to reassure yourself that it had always been ghastly and would continue to be ghastly. Um, these deep, anguished questions about what I'm writing and is it big enough, is it significant enough, is it sort of silly and womanish and all that sort of thing. And I want to know, is that pain and self-loathing and torture, is it an indivisible part of the enterprise, do you think? Well, I find it to be. Um, and there's something George Orwell said about writing a book. He said, um, people, people only write, write books because they just can't not write them. They have to. And because it, uh, writing a book is like a, a terrible bout of, of some horrible illness. And, and, and I think that's true. I mean, it's a bit of an overstatement perhaps, but um, what I've found is that in everything I write, and I'm talking about not, not just books, but every little article I've ever written for, or review or that, that I've ever written, um, it, it goes through the same little pattern. I start off saying, oh God, I've got to hand this in. How, many, <laughs> how much time have I got? How will I start? What's it about? What have I got to say? I've got nothing to say. I am hopeless. I am a piece of shit. I am a phony and I'm just about to be discovered as a phony. And then I think, well, pull yourself together. You've got till Friday to hand this in. <laughs> so, so then I stop luxuriating in self-hatred and then, but, but, but then, you know, then I think, okay, I'll think up a first sentence. So you think up your first sentence and you go, oh yeah, okay, now it's the second sentence and away you go. And then as you get in there, you realise that all that first stuff, you have to throw it away because it was just throat clearing. Uh, but, but then that, the sort of agonised part of it, I now realise is an essential part of the process. It, it seems that you... <clears throat> you have to be sure that you can't do it in order to do it. And I, I don't think I'm the only person, the only, you know, artist in the world who feels that. It's as if you've got to go into the part of yourself which is abject and helpless and ignorant. Um, you know, I used to think that because I'd written one book, I thought, oh, this is a breeze, I can shit this in, I'll write another one. And so, <laughs> so I wrote a second one and it was shit. I mean, I showed it to the publisher and they said, sorry, Helen, this is shit. That was the word they used. Okay, so what, what did that, I mean, at that point, if you can climb back there, did it make you feel more doubtful about the first one? Um, no. It just made me think, oh, I thought I knew how to write, but I don't know how to write. I know how to write that book, that one over there which is finished, but I don't know how to write this one that I want to write now. It's as if you have to teach yourself to write again every single time. And uh, in a way, I, I think it's, uh, 
Well, I remember my former husband, one of them, um, saying, talking about a certain painter that he was quite a famous and very good painter, but um, my husband, who knew a lot about art, said, the trouble with him he, is he has facility. Uh, it was too easy for him, he meant. And I, I think that's what happens when you've written a book. You think, I know how to do this. I've done it once, and now I know how to do it. And I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to do it again. And then you sit down, and you think, oh then you get that thing of feeling, actually, where do I start? And what's this about? And why am I doing it? And I'm, <clears throat> and I'm already feeling miserable. And it's, it's kind of like, in a sense, it's a, um, it's a sign of good faith to go through that. Right. I remember reading, a, I think it was a profile of Norman Mailer, um, written by Martin Amos. He was commenting about... Gore Vidal, and he said, this is Mailer, the problem with, I won't try the Mailer accent, the problem with Vidal is he lacks the wound. <laughs> and I think maybe it's that the same thing, just this idea that a piece of writing is improved through suffering in some way. Mm. Well, that always makes... <coughs> I, I always... I used to feel terribly uncomfortable with all the way that people talked about artists. And, and I think it was partly because, um, you know, as a woman of my age and generation, you, it was very daring to think of yourself as an artist because all the artists... You know, when I got out of university, I never thought I'd write a novel because I thought all the novels were written by men in other countries. <laughs> and, I mean, I know there I'm were... I'm never going to be Russian. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to be Russian and, and, uh, and I'm never going to be American and I'm never going to be Jewish or all the things that you would need, need to be a fantastic writer. But um, I don't know. I, I, I just look, everybody's got a wound. Everybody in the world, whether they write a book or not. Um, and, but there is that theory that, that the desire to, to make art comes from some wound in people, and I, I don't really know what to say about that. But I know that somebody like Gore Vidal never looked like he was particularly wounded. No. I mean, he had this that sort of striding confidence, but, but there are some people who walk around with striding confidence and underneath it they're a gibbering wreck. Yeah, that's true, that's mm. true. I, um, I think one of the interesting things about reading now three volumes of your diaries is one, how... Um, how clear your voice is from the very beginning. And I know that you burned the bits before it got good and <laughs> see my earlier remarks about everybody feeling as though they own things about you. I was personally affronted when I heard about you, you burning your diaries because I thought it was a theft from my reading future. <laughs> so I just want you to be absolutely clear that I'm not happy about that and I'm, <laughs> there would be Plenty of people in this room who also are cross. No, you wouldn't. You shouldn't be cross because the ones I burnt, were, you were they this. were boring. <laughs> they were boring. It was, um, yeah, I burnt them because they bored me, you know, and I look back and when they stop boring me, that's when I'll stop burning. So you essentially burned the ones that got wet up to when you were miserable in Paris? Um, yeah, well, right. I wasn't actually all that miserable in Paris. I was lonely in Paris, but everyone's lonely in Paris. Um, yeah, well, I don't know, it's sort of, they started to get more interesting then, and partly because um, they weren't so much about um, 
you know, sort of whinging about my whoever my current boyfriend was, you know, being mean to me or not loving me as much as I demanded that he should love me. And that stopped sort of being about that. And I felt great relief at that point. And I thought, okay, I'll burn that. And of course, I mean, that's what Monkey Group was about. So, you know, it's all been written down somewhere. Um, stop looking at me like that. This is a test. I'm looking at you with a completely neutral face and you've gone to pieces. Very interesting, Ms. Garner. Um, but so the, but the, the, I don't know, the, your voice doesn't change at all. It's, it's the same through all of those decades, I think. It's quite remarkable. Mm. Um, but something that reading those diaries in the present era that really makes me feel sad when I read them is the extent to which you are constantly doubting the sort of subject matter that you're writing about and whether it's substantial enough to qualify you as a proper writer. That's what makes me feel sad when I read them because I think, I think, what? You're crazy! Mm -hmm. And yet you spend so much time worrying about that. Um, and when you read back through those entries now, do you, f do you feel that way? I mean, do you... Um, well, when I read back over those diaries, one of the things that was really awful about putting those diaries together was, which really was just an editing job, a kind of like a filleting job, I, I had to do a lot of cutting, but um, to cut out all the boring bits. And um, it was just really gr gruesome to see the way that I'd behaved in the past. You know, it was... Um, I often, when I'm trying to think about, to, to express this feeling of what it's like to look at those diaries and see, see your younger self in full glorious idiocy and, and stupidity, it reminds me of those cartoons that Michael Lunig used to do where um, there, there, were these, there would be these little angels flying through the sky and they were little, little creatures with little flapping nighties and little wings. And, and on the ground down below, there would be some horrible war taking place and there'd be bombs going off and people shooting and stabbing each other. And these little angels would be flying through the sky kind of looking down with, this, with that kind of look of horror on their face. And, um, and, and their horror was not just of what was going on beneath them, but because they were helpless to in, intervene. And, um, and that's what it's like reading your own diaries again. <laughs> <laughs> but in fairness, I mean, even when you're in some of your most celebrated non-fiction works, um, Joe Chinque or The First Stone or um, uh, This House of Grief, I mean, you spent a fair bit of time in those giving yourself a big kick around as well. I mean, just in the contemporaneous sense, you know. And in the actual book. Yeah, mm. and questioning your own responses to things that you're seeing or mm. questioning your own capacity to make judgments on some things. So yeah. what I'm saying is it seems like some degree of self-flagellation is um, part of the mix. Hmm. Well, you see, when, when I first started to write non-fiction, um, well, I've, all, I've, I've always written freelance journalism between books that say I've made a living uh, all over these years. But um, when, well, for example, the uh, Joe Chinque's Consolation, I went to the, the trial, trials of the two women who uh, 
had killed Joe. And um, when I came out the end of that and I'd um, inter interviewed the people that I could interview, Joe's, Joe's family mostly. And so then there I am sitting there with all this material and uh, I had absolutely no idea how to write the book, I thought. Um, there's, it's as if people have... I think writers ha have a fantasy in, in their mind of what is the perfect book. What would be the perfect way to write a book about a, a murder, for example? And, and often you would have, the fantasy you'd have would be that the, the writer would be um, a detached um, embodying, uh, embodiment. It'd be uh, hovering above the, the events and the people and the trial and everything that had happened and would be able to see, to, have, to scan the territory of the story and see its shape and, and describe it in a detached way. And I thought that was how I was going to have to write that book. I thought that's how you wrote a book about such a, a terrible subject. But when I sat down and tried, I thought, I don't even know how to do that. I've got no idea how to detach from the material to that extent. <coughs> I don't know how, I didn't know and I still don't know, um, how, how to sort of hover over it. And so I figured that the only way I knew was to build myself in, into it and to have an eye, to write in first person, to have an eye narrator, because that meant that I could give full value to what you just mentioned, which is my doubts and anxieties about the project. The other thing about, <coughs> I mean, I guess the ideal circumstances in which, you know, you go into trying to tell a story like that is having access to everyone, which, you know, in all of those books, there were people that you did not, you weren't able to speak with. Mm. And that must have been, I would think, as a journalist, terrifying to think, well, there's a, there's a part of this whole landscape from which, you know, I am barred. Yeah. But actually, I mean, it, it shouldn't work as a book when there's a, an account missing in that way. Mm. But oddly enough, with those books, by the end, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was a significant structural problem, probably because a lot of times your central themes were about doubt and revision ah. and self-questioning. Yeah. Well, you're thinking, you, you think like a, someone who's been trained as a journalist. I do, yeah. And as a lawyer. Yeah. So um, you've got... Um, see, I didn't come at it in that way. I mean, when I say I did journalism, I did freelance journalism, which meant I, they were like um, just roaming about, writing down what I saw. You know, I'd never yeah. really tried to, to write about, um, a, a, you know, a really important court case or anything like that where, where uh, you, and you've, you've been trained in the ideal well, of objectivity. Let's just use that verb loosely. I mean, I was, yeah. Trendish, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but okay, so we'll sort of leave you out of it and we'll say the journalists are trained, if you insist. Uh, journalists are trained to, to um, they're taught that there is such a thing as objectivity and that they have to observe it in their work. And of course, there is no such thing as objectivity. I mean, okay, there's balance 
and there's fairness of that you you try to to get if there's a two-sided thing happening you try to get both both sides you give a decent account of, of each side but if you can't do that if you can't do that um, get get the information you need from the horse's mouth as it were well what are you going to do are you going to not tell the story or are you going to put yourself in there and say I tried my best to speak to these people but they didn't want to speak to me and and this is what I think they might have thought or felt and I dare to you know I mean it's it, 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 it's um, impertinent of me to think that I know how they might feel but I'll take a punt I'll I'll um, so that it's just, if you build yourself into the narrative like that, you give yourself that prerogative, and that is often um, it, it's a um, like what I said before. It's a sign of good faith to say, well, I wanted to talk to that person. She didn't want to talk to me. Um, either I'm furious that she won't talk to me, or I completely um, acknowledge that she's within her rights not to speak to me, and nobody has to speak to me. But but to say, and, and this made me feel this, or it made me feel that, and build all that in to the story. Because what I'm trying to do in those non-fiction books is to get the reader to come into the story with me. And let's it's like I'm saying, let's go into this story and look around, and see, let's see what these people are like, Rather than me saying, well, I know that Maria Cinque is such and such a person, or which would bore me to try to do that. But I, I like the idea that you kind of invite the reader in to the mess of everything, mm -hmm. and, and you kind of slog your way through it together. I mean, it's un well, thinking of Joe Cinque in particular, that the shape of the book is the unsatisfactoriness even of the legal resolution, right? Yeah. Um, and in a way, your best training for writing about that is not to be legally trained. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Well, mm. people, people have often said to me, oh, why did you do a law degree? And I just think, no fucking way am I doing a law degree. <laughs> do you know what? You would love studying law. <laughs> studying law is great fun. I did it and then I got all the hell out of there before uh, any threat of actually being a lawyer um, Materialize. But the best thing about studying law is that it's based on these crazy stories. Mm, you know, yeah, these, well, that's these, the best part about it. Oh, these yeah. parables of human behaviour. And I, you know, I loved studying it because I was like, what were those two women talking about on the train to Paisley when they were, you know, <laughs> pouring ginger beer over their ice cream? Why do you even do that? Why mm. was there a snail in there? What mm. happened to those ladies afterwards? That's like, a great case, the snail and the ginger right? beer. Well, the lady yeah. who won the, you know, who essentially became a building block of um, negligence law, mm. um, actually died in a mental institution. Well, Didn't that's end something... Didn't massively happy, happily for No, her. well, I don't remember that. I, I mean, I didn't know Don't that. put snails in your ginger beer yeah, is the, uh, one of the lessons. Um, I, when I was at the, the, the trial of uh, Robert Farquharson, uh, that's the story that's in this house of grief um, in the gaps between the actual parts of the hearing like during the at lunchtime and and when the, there was a pause in the, the hearings I didn't want to be, stand around his, his family and her family would be out in the in the courtyard and um, I didn't want to hang around them and you know be standing near them with my little notebook so I used to go into the at the Supreme Court's got this fantastic library and it's kind of like circular and you go 
you go in there and there are all these shelves and you can, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of judges' decisions on the most fantastic stories. So I used to go in there and just get up on the little ladder and pull one down or three down and sit at the table and just read those stories. They're so wonderful. But you know, I, didn't, I, I, I never had to do an exam on them. I, I, I did actually make up my mind once that I would never ever in my life do another exam and I think I've managed to keep to that in my life. <laughs> I still have nightmares about doing exams. Yeah, me too, aren't they awful? But they're basically just writing to a deadline essentially, aren't they? I mean, well, you, I mean, you can part. say that. <laughs> you can say that in your detached, cool way, but most people find them really painful. <laughs> so, a kind of I'm interested in this idea of form. You know, when you won that huge prize, God, what's it called? It's the famous big one that they oh, rang the you Wyndham up. the Wyndham Campbell. That's the one, yeah. sorry. Having never personally won it, I haven't oh, well, just wait a while. They've got lots of money and they're <laughs> handing it out. Right. <laughs> and they just ring you up, right? You don't even have to put in a submission and no, be humiliated. No, it just came out of nowhere. Like, I just got this email one day saying, <clears throat> dear Mrs Garner, um, we'd like you to contact us because we have some good news for you. And I thought, oh yeah, some scam. So I was just about, I was just about to press delete. And then, I, and then I looked down to the bottom and it said, Yale University. And I thought, hmm, that might be interesting. So just a side note, this is how you scam Helen Garner, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> just pop a Yale letterhead. Uh, Yale is now selling solar power panels. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Yeah, anyway, that's how I got to hear about it. So, I um, mean, I had no idea the prize even existed. And it's just these, it's just these two gay guys in America, and one of them was, I think, the, the inheritor of the Campbell Soup fortune. And, and they were these guys who thought, well, how about we just um, give a lot of money to people who... Who've already done the work. Yeah, or who are riding away and needed a little bit of help. And, and so they just kind of scan the globe every year and hand out 10, 10 prizes. And, and I mean, you're, it's, it's that kind of staggering, you know, this is the upside of American culture, that staggering generosity. I just go, here, take this, when I say a bucket of money, yeah. you know, like a cataract of money falls on people. Somebody in Ireland, somebody here, and somebody in God knows where. I remember reading something that you said when that prize did come bucketing all over your head. Um, you said that it made you feel, not vindicated, but reassured about the form of your writing. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, well, see, what, what I noticed... <laughs> this is going to sound really awful. Just say it. What, OK. Well, OK, first up, I won a few prizes, right? When I wrote fiction, when I was writing fiction, I, I won... A few prizes here and there, but when I started writing non-fiction, I, um, I didn't win any prizes at all. And I thought, yeah, what well, that book's actually quite good. How come nobody gave that a prize? And I, and I was quite miffed. And of course, I think it was because everyone hated me after I published the first stone, and that really gave people the shits, and especially annoyed them because it was a bestseller. <laughs> and and I think they. Um, you know, that, that was caused intense rage and there's always somebody on any prize on any prize jury that says, I've never got over the first stone. If, if, if she even gets shortlisted for this prize, I'm leaving now. <laughs> and um, so, so I guess I thought, you know, it's a weird thing, but prizes, like in that little bit that you read out of my speech, the Stella, 
the thing about the awful thing about prizes is that you you, you sort of think it's, they've got something to do with worth. And I mean, you know, on the face of it, they do. Although sometimes you see somebody will get get an enormous prize, and you think, but that book was crap. Not you, Jen. Twenty twenty two, Miles Franklin, spot on. We both agree. Jen, I gave Jennifer Down a prize once when I, I was the, <laughs> I was one of the judges on a short story contest, and uh, that was years ago. And and uh, I, I've read this story of hers. It was just such a standout, and I thought. I, it had a sentence in it that has never left my mind. It was about this woman who goes to dinner with her dad. And it's just a lovely account of her father and her daughter talking. And, and, and it's been a happy meeting and they say goodbye and, and, and the man walks away. And she just used this expression as he walked down the street. And all his veins were warm. And I thought, oh, that's fabulous. Give that girl a bucket of money. <laughs> 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 because I can see Jennifer Down in Newcount, I, re I report that she's dying with pleasure in the front row right now. <laughs> I've never forgotten that, that description, and I am going to come back to the ferociously interesting point that you were making just before I... Yeah, which I've already forgotten. It. No, 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 <laughs> I haven't. So, um, that description of your dad making and eating a corned beef sandwich <laughs> is something that has never left me. Oh, I'm so glad because, yeah, I, I, I still think of it, you know, my dad died, I don't know, 20 years ago, but the way he made a corned beef sandwich was something epic about it. I can even picture he ate it like this, right? Yeah, it was more like he was making it. He yeah. was leaning over the bench and he had the two slices of bread. But I think the point of the passage was that he, he made kind of sympathetic movements with his lips while he was doing it. You know, so sort of, mm, <laughs> and and if the and if the corned beef went over the edge, he sort of went mm, like that. <laughs> right, prizes. You were saying that people oh, yeah. think they've got something to do with worth. Yep. And okay. of course, in Jennifer's case, they do. Yep. But otherwise, <laughs> everyone else is hopeless except Jennifer. <laughs> no. Now, what I mean is that um, you can get this awful feeling that. If, if your book, you know, you think you've written a good book and you think you've got a chance of winning a prize and you look at the shortlist, you think, yeah, well, it's possible. And then you don't win it. And this happens again and again. <laughs> well, you start to get um, paranoid. You know, you, know, you, you think, well, I actually had a, a terrible fit of paranoia when one of my books didn't win a prize. And I, you know, in my secret heart, I thought that it should have. And um, I... I, I thought to myself, I sort of went down the Googler, and that's what I was trying to express in that speech, the idea that if you don't win a prize, you suddenly think, everyone must have been lying to me. All these years they've said they thought my work was good, and they must have been lying to me. It must be really crap. And, and they're laughing at me behind my back. And, you know, I went right down a Googler about, in that way, and uh, uh, it was t terrible. I had to go and see a shrink. <laughs> But he said, I mean, actually, it was really funny. I thought, I actually feel like I'm going nuts because I, I think that my work is actually shit and everyone's been lying to me for 30 years. So this is, and so I went to this guy. <laughs> he was really a lovely guy. But um, anyway, I only went three times. And after I'd been twice, he, he said, um, look, Helen, I don't really think you need to, I don't think you need to be here. And um, 
And, and I, but I, I was saying stuff like this, I don't know why I have to feel all these things. And, and he said, Helen, you're an artist. You're supposed to feel things. <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay, all right, well, I'll go back to work in that case. So off. How very validating. God, yeah, he was a really, it was a really fantastic guy. You know, the funny thing was, when I first went to this guy, he, his his office, his his um, consulting room, was in a building up in Carlton where my first husband and I once, I remember, went to a party in, back in the late sixties, and I had this fur coat. <laughs> that it was probably rabbit, that I bought at an op shop. And I really loved this fur coat and I wore it to the party <laughs> and I left it on the bed upstairs. You know how you leave your coat on the hostess's bed. At the end of the evening, um, I, I went back and someone had stolen my <laughs> fur coat. And I was so pissed off, I've never forgotten it. Anyway, I always remember that house every time I drove past it. I go, that's where some asshole stole my fur coat. <laughs> but I thought, and I sat down to talk to this shrink and I thought, I'd, oh, I'll tell him about the fur coat. And I thought, mm, no, don't, because he was a psychoanalyst. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he would have gone, hmm, a fur coat. No, what does that Tell me a, about the dead rabbits, Helen. <laughs> a stolen fur coat. And you're still thinking about it 40 years later? <laughs> Do you know how sick it is to consider telling a shrink about a fur coat, rabbit fur coat story, and then decide against telling him. <laughs> All in the same session. That is quite, um, that's quite Byzantine. Mm, there might be a story in there. Maybe I could write it if I wasn't so lazy. Yeah. So, I mean, we've discussed paranoia and self-loathing. We've discussed, you know, people are lying to me and Petey publishing me for decades because... I'm not winning enough prizes. But what about when people get the shits with something that you've written? And I guess the first stone is the most, you know. Mm. And to be honest, um, at the time... You had the shits If I'd you? met you, I would have given you the right, you know, rounds of the kitchen because I read it and I was outraged um, because I thought that, you know, you were lecturing, you know, my generation of feminists and so on. And I think probably it's one of the books that I've changed my mind about Mainly because I think when I reread it, I listened to um, your self-questioning a lot more, I think. And I, th I think maybe one of the things about getting older is you probably don't think you have all the clear answers to complicated things um, mm. anymore. Maybe I'm just broken down, I, I don't know. Um, but that experience of writing something and even in the way that you've written it, I can, I can imagine that you would have been surprised by elements of that public response. Did it, I mean, if you had to, on a scale, rank not winning prizes, people getting the shits about books that you've mm. written, like, which of them bothered you more and bother you more now? Has well, that changed? Well, actually, neither, neither of those two things bothers me yeah. now because I'm sort of too old and crabby. And, I, you, yeah, you, as you get older and you none of that seems to matter so much anymore. But, but uh, you know, well, the first stone, it was a stir. You know, I, I mean, I really got up people's noses and that wasn't my aim, but it, that's what happened. And it was very, uh, I was very shocked by the um, degree and force and of, of hatred that hit me. But, but by the same token, I realised that um, um, 
you know, a lot of the criticisms that people threw at me were quite justified. Um, but uh, after I, after it all died down and everyone calmed down, and um, I thought, well, now I'm free. I thought now I'm not because because feminism had meant so much to me and it mean had such an enormous effect on my life. Um, I. That's why why it so shocked me when well the first stone was about the first the first wave of what's turned into um, me too when you think about it and and my generation of feminists go what she went to the police about that I mean that because we were all these kind of libertarians and thought that you didn't involve the police in your life but especially in your sexual life and um, but. Um, so I thought, well, well, now I'm free. If I can survive that degree of hatred and, and, and sort of poison, you know, there was some pretty poisonous stuff that was thrown around. And, you know, people glaring at me in the street and sending me um, horrible letters and everything. But um, I thought, well, okay, I got through that and I'm still standing. So now I don't have to write, uh, as it were, to please this group that I felt that I had been in and had been enlarged by and, and my life had been changed by in a fantastic way. But I thought, well, I, I don't have to um, please them. I'm free to say what I really think. And I didn't want to be part of a group where if I said what I really thought, I would be cast into outer darkness. I went during the Me Too, I mean, I went over to... Um, France and interviewed. Remember, there was that group of sort of 60s era feminists that wrote a group letter, um, kind of denouncing the Me Too movement. Oh yeah. Um, and I talked to a few of them and a few of younger women. Oh, sorry, this is a total digression now, but it was really interesting because a lot of the older women had been part of that sort of 1968 uprising that was about liberating sexuality from the constraints of conservative censorship. Mm. And I guess the kind of, you know, the point at which that got most completely out of control was, you know, by the 70s when there were defences being written of pederasty and so yeah. on. Um, but I think sometimes that generations are defined by what it is that they're pushing back against. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So if you're the power structure that you're, um, that you're resisting often defines how you respond to various situations. Yes, yes, I, I'm sure that's true. And uh, there was one thing about the first stone that I think was a, a failure of mine in that book was that I, because I, you see, when I, I used to be a teacher, but um, I got the sack in 1972, and I have not had a job since 1972. And I haven't actually worked in an organisation which had a hierarchy, where I had a place in a hierarchy. I mean, I've always worked freelance. Um, and so I did not understand uh, what it was to have a boss or what it was to have... Oh, that's um, interesting. Uh, yeah, and I realised that kind of in, in retrospect, that that, that was a... Um, a, a lack in me, and this was pointed out by people oh, who, who criticised the book quite justly on, on those grounds. So I mean, you know, see, my, see, I'm the sort of person who said, what, you don't like your boss? Well, thank you, just leave. I mean, that's just pathetic. You can't, that's just a pathetic... Don't write a hit novel. 
your experimentation with different forms is has been driven by all sorts of things that aren't just your creative urges, right? Like, I mean, when you were married to a novelist, you kind of stopped writing fiction. And from your diaries, it's clear that you were vacating the scene mm. a little bit because two novelists in a two-bedroom flat is too many novelists. That's right. Um, but how do you feel now generally about fiction and non-fiction? I remember reading and interviewing uh, Rachel Cusk, who kind of f swore off fiction, having written, I think, half a dozen uh, novels, and she said that she just got sick of... <laughs> the conceit of having making up characters called Jack and Jill and having mm. them do things to each other. She said, I just mm. found it boring after a while. So then she w wrote memoir, but she got into heaps of trouble because people didn't think she was appropriately womanly about being a mother or um, thought she was mean about her ex-husband in that book Aftermath, which mm. is quite an extraordinary work about the breakup of a marriage. So she kind of got felt chased out of memoir and <laughs> <laughs> so she's ended up writing these sort of quite that trilogy which is essentially observations from life mm. stitched into this extremely simple seeming but actually profoundly complex and mm. impressive structure. This question will end at some point, okay. I promise, <laughs> and you will have um, a little go. But so did you feel like you moved out of fiction into non-fiction because you were scurrying or because you were sick of the form or mm. now you can talk? Thank you. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to say that I found when I did start to write non-fiction, I really liked it. I didn't feel, oh, God, I'm making such a big sacrifice. I, mean, I never thought that I was doing that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I never thought I was saying, well, he's a novelist and he doesn't think much of my work and, uh, you know, it's, um, I'll, I'll move off the turf of, of rivalry. Um, I, I don't know if I unconsciously did that or if I, if I really just... I, I felt that when I started writing non-fiction, I felt much more... Um, I liked it. I thought, this, I, can, I can do this. I thought, oh, I actually do know how to do this, even though I still had to go through all that self-hatred stuff we were talking about at the beginning. <laughs> but but uh, I, I figured that I had experience as a freelance journalist, you know, going into situations where I was a stranger, uh, into places where people worked, and just standing around and watching what they were doing and thinking about it. I thought, oh, I've done quite a lot of that, and I can probably turn that to, um, to, to use uh, in non-fiction and uh, in a sense I feel that it's my natural form. Well you, I guess with non-fiction you're allowed to walk into somebody else's life and, yeah. and observe them really closely to yeah. a degree that it would be creepy if you did it with someone that you, you know, just met casually, right? Mm. And I mean you have had the odd clip around the ear over the years for, you know, borrowing too much from your, from your life or your relationships, yeah. which I always find a bit odd because where does every, where does every novelist mm. get stuff from? Um, but did you feel that there was a permission afoot in non-fiction, that you had a, a structure right there and your job was just to find things and to observe mm. them and to describe them in sentences without excessive adverbs? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I, I, I guess um, report noticing things. No, I'm good at noticing things. Um, and oh, I don't know. I didn't notice that. <laughs> no, I don't know how that. I, I, well, I remember reading it, um, the, the South African writer um, Nadine Gordimer has this wonderful introduction to her collection of short stories years ago, and she said in it that um, interesting things about writers. She said writers are weird people; they don't even know when they're writing and when they're not. Um, and I, I, I sort of feel like that. I think that. that she said, she said that writers have got an unnaturally exaggerated ability to, to observe things. Their observation skills are, are developed beyond the normal. And I don't know how that comes about or if they're, they're... It's a funny thing. I was sitting in a cafe the other day with a, a close friend of mine who's also a writer, but she's a, she's a journalist. And uh, we were talking about this observation thing and the whole time we were talking there was paper napkin on the table next to me and I was kind of drumming my fingers on it and sometimes I was sort of pushing my fingernails into the weave of it you know because I was you know while I was talking I was slightly agitated and after a while I stopped and and I said oh look at the way I've made all those funny little fingernail marks on that paper and she said oh I would never have noticed that and then we both burst out laughing and I thought I wonder if that those things seem to me to have high value. I think it's not just noticing them, but valuing them that makes the difference. And does it feel a waste to think that that tiny, tiny thing would not be recorded? I mean, does it feel... No, oh, I went straight home and wrote it in my diary. Of course you did. <laughs> no, I didn't. I... <laughs> but I will now. <laughs> You people can have that for free, the fingernails on the napkin. <laughs> no, but it's, your... it's actually true that that I do feel that there's a lot of things that go on in the world that are so tiny and I, I, I feel that I'm doing some useful work in noticing them. Uh, and uh, and when, I, when I wrote The Children's Bark, there's some... I, I, had, I had this storehouse of observations that didn't seem to have any point when I first picked them up and, and jotted them down. And I, I just stored them up in certain, in certain notebooks. And, uh, and I wanted to... There's a scene in the children's park where the, when um, Elizabeth and her, her, her boyfriend Philip go to Athena and um, Dexter's house for dinner. And I wanted them to be... I wanted to do a conversation which was... Um, like the way people talk when they're all talking excitedly at a dinner mm -hmm. table. And I just went to this notebook and I picked up all these bits that I'd stolen from people in trams and, and people at other dinner parties I'd been at. And I, I just got about, there's about 15 of them, and I just arranged them into this order. <laughs> and, and they kind of, they're all, they're non sequiturs, you know, they don't connect with each other. They sort of zigzag down the page. And I thought, fuck, this is fantastic. <laughs> I thought, how did I figure this out? It, when I just threw them onto the page and they kind of went ding, 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 and then a little meaning came off them. So how does that happen? I don't know. But that's the opposite feeling of the self-hatred feeling. Right. You know, it was worth it. All those little things I picked up and, and stored them, not knowing what I was going to use them for. But, but one day I, I thought, I need a thing and I've got a box of things and I'll go to this box of things and pull a few out and, and they're always valuable. 
It's like that feeling you get when you make a sentence perfect. I mean, I've never really had it in the way that I'm oh, sure yes, you get you it. But there's something, I don't know, you can't, can you be taught that? I don't know, because you're, you've got that mad old teacher that you were terrified of and then you Oh, Mrs up. Dunkley, oh, she, no, she just taught me the grammar. She didn't have anything, like she wasn't, um, she couldn't have um, talk, talked in that way about writing. She just taught me how to make a sentence that was grammatically complex and correct and God bless her. You know, she, oh, she taught me, well, I was gonna say everything I know, but that'd be overstating it. <laughs> she, just to digress again for a moment, you found out some stuff about her later on though, didn't you, that changed your view of her? And I'm always interested in people changing their Second views thoughts. on others. Yeah. Yeah, well, Mrs. Dunkley was this um, ferocious teacher that I, when I first went to um, uh, an Anglican girls' school in Geelong, and I'd come from a state school at Ocean Grove, and I probably had a pretty broad accent at that point. And, uh, the, you know, the, pretty much the first day I was there, I thought I was pretty smart because, you know, I'd read the encyclopedia, and she, she asked us, so when was the, well, it was the Great Fire of London or the plague or something? 1665, I said, and she goes, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and so that's the kind of teacher she was, really crabby, and everyone's terrified of her. But she, um, we used to do this thing called parsing and analysis. I don't know if there's anyone in this room who did that at school, but I loved it. And they drew, the, she drew columns subject, verb, object, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just can take any amount of that. I just took to it like a duck to water. And she, and one day she said that an adverb could modify an adjective. And I thought, what, that can't be right. And I said, how, how does that work? How does, can it do that? And she said, here's an example. The wind was terribly cold. And I just went, get doing, you know, it was one of those moments where a thousand pennies dropped and she saw me, she saw me get it. And I think from then on, um, you know, she was still terrifying. But anyway, the thing about her was that she, um, she was the kind of person who went down, you know, walked down the aisle between the desks and looked at your work and she had this really sharp pencil and she would, you could, and but she, a, a strange smell came off her, like it was kind of a chemical smell, and um, and her hand would tremble a little bit, and she had these weird band-aids that were kind of oval-shaped band-aids that I've never seen before or since, and her skin was very fragile. And anyway, so I wrote about her, and one day I got a letter from a stranger, and this person said, um, I read your article about Mrs. Dunkley, and I'd like to tell you that I'm her daughter. Um, she said, and uh, my mother was an alcoholic. And uh, I can't remember what else she said, but it was a lovely letter, it was a beautiful letter. But, um, and she sent a photo of herself with Mrs. Dunkley, and of course I'd never seen a photo of Mrs. Dunkley in 50 years, and there she was. Oh, and I looked at her and it just broke my heart because I thought that's what it was, that's what that smell was that was on her, that it was maybe something she'd rinsed her mouth to get rid of the smell and she was trembling and and she was on a hair trigger the whole time and I, I just realised that she was like an addict and yet she taught um, 
she taught me things, you know, which laid the groundwork for everything that I love and have been able to do. So, yeah, I, I just feel such gratitude for her and, yeah, and I was glad that, that, that she sent me the photo, her daughter. It is possible to overindulge in adverbs, though, isn't it? Oh, yes, it certainly is. <laughs> Speak, I mean, have you had to control your adverb? Yeah, well, I, I, I'd forgotten the adverb thing until I'd published my second book. And after that book came out, I was at, at, a, at a sort of writer's thing, conference, and, and there was this German guy there, and he said to me, you use too many adverbs. <laughs> and I thought, God, he was right. I did. And, and when, anyway, so I went home and I thought, right, that's it. And so <laughs> I, I was the, the, the adverb killer from then on. But, but, um, but, but then I, that book that, that he criticised for having too many adverbs was republished. You know, somebody, you know, text bought my backlist and they were republishing it. And I thought, fantastic, I can, re, I can re, get the adverbs out of that. And, and I said this to my, my then husband, the other writer, I said, I'm going to take the adverbs out of this. He said, you can't do that, that's tampering with history. <laughs> I said, stand back. So, <laughs> so I, I slashed the adverbs out, and, um, but I, I only did it, you know, that, this was in the book called Honour and Other People's Children, which has always been a bit of a mess, but, but it's not because of the adverbs. <laughs> that, that was the book I wrote when I thought, oh yeah, now I know how to write a book and now I'm going to write another one. And the one that, that was shit, yeah. But the savage joy that just comes out of the pages of your diary when you've spent a brisk morning curry combing a paragraph down to its absolute bones is infectious, I mean. Mm. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. I think everyone should have that attitude towards adverbs, but yeah, you know, it's unfortunately, I've got a real great. problem. i got a real problem with the adverbs. I've never noticed that Semicolons as well. Mm, too many of those. So now when you look back at that, I'm sorry I keep re returning to this point, but I just want to establish something about your early anxiety, about the subject matter of what you were writing and this feeling of not belonging in a sort of fictional oeuvre or not being weighty and kind of ponderous and, yeah. and significant enough to be writing. It just always... It sort of reminds me a bit of... Lots of the women that I talked to in um, that show, Misrepresented, that we did about women in politics, you know, I love all these that show. women, who, thank you, um, who kind of arrive at Parliament absolutely conscious that this place wasn't built for them. Yep. And so they're constantly questioning or feeling lucky to be there yeah. and a bit like someone's going to find them out. And it's so interesting because a lot of the blokes think, Fabulous, I'm here, I'm amazing. <laughs> and you've got these women going like, quick, they're going to do all my homework. Where's the toilet? Yeah, where's the toilet? Yeah. yeah. There wasn't so, one. is that question of occupying space as an artist for a woman more settled now than it was for you back then, do you think? Oh, yes, but the world's changed a lot too. I mean, you see, when I was young, I wasn't a pretty rotten student when I went to university. I, I, um, I did arts at Melbourne, I did English and French. And um, uh, I, I didn't 
sort of get it. You know, I didn't know what they. I, I must say, I'm grateful that they laid out the territory for me about literature and what what was things that one should should read and did read. But um, I, I I never thought that I would be a writer. You know, I, I didn't. Although that was the only thing I knew how to do, and in the sense that I loved writing letters and I loved writing diaries, and I knew that it was the thing that gave me the most pleasure in in the whole of my life, but it would never occurred to me that I that I would write a novel, because I sort of didn't know how. I didn't know how. See, this is like before feminism, in a sense. Um, Feminism hit us in the early 70s, and before then we were still struggling with this idea. Well, you weren't called a writer; you were called a woman, a woman writer. And what that meant was that you wrote on what was called a small canvas. And and the real writers, who were men, um, they wrote about war and. Um, you know, great social movements, or I don't know what they bloody well wrote about, but but uh, but but they their work, their concerns were considered to be um, more legitimate than than ours. That that if your work was my work was called too domestic, and it was too small in scale, uh, and or as actually one critic said. <laughs> Helen Garner talks dirty and passes it off as realism. <laughs> <laughs> that was very squashing. Actually, you know, years later, I, I ran into that critic. Uh, as it turned out, I was invited to give a lecture at his university. And so I rock up and, and, um, and he, was, he didn't remember this, obviously, but um, he was a nice guy. But he was put in charge of my visit. And so he was showing me around, I don't know, Townsville or whatever it was. And I said, listen, I've just got there's something I really should say to you. Um, I said, you, you reviewed my second book and you said blah, blah, blah. And, he, and he, he had the grace to blush. He actually went red and he said, oh, God, I'm really sorry. He said, I don't remember. I don't remember that. But I said, oh, never mind, I've recovered. But, um, but I, I, just, I was a bit glad to um, point it out to him. <laughs> but, but see, I, I, I do think that, um, I, I think, you see, I, I, I always feel I still have this feeling sometimes that I have to write short, that, that I've only got a certain amount of, no, this doesn't happen to me so much anymore because now I'm old and, and I've got a lot of work out there, but I, I used to feel that um, I had to get to the point quickly and, and get out, you know, get in, get out, don't linger. That's what, um, that's what Raymond Carver says. You know, that's super minimalist. I just love his work so much. Yeah. And uh, he, he said, get in, get out, don't linger. And that's when I took, you know, I took a leaf out of that book. Um, and you've got to scrub it back, get rid of all the stuff that's not really working hard. But um, I, I did feel, that I, I remember Elizabeth Jolly, who I also dearly loved, um, talking to me about when you give a talk or a speech, she said, Helen, always bring it in five minutes under time. And, and I thought, oh, gee, that's sort of like an old lady talking, you know, we don't really belong here. But when I, I got to do, you know, you know, sort of panel talks, I used to notice that blokes would go over time with impunity, you know, they'd ramble on for an extra 20 minutes. And I would have prepared, you know, neatly, my neat little speech. <laughs> and they'd be sort of relaxed and letting it all hang out. But so it, it, it does take a while as a woman to 
to relax and think, yeah, okay, I do belong here and I have got something to say that's worth listening to, so I'll take it right to the, um, right to the 60 minutes. Although, of course, and I just noticed that it's 7.25, so I don't know if you're sending me a little message there. <laughs> but of course, your disinclination to occupy excess space has become actually a hallmark of your work. I mean, your economy is really the most famous thing about you. Mm. Yeah, well, see, I mean, look, I, one thing I realised getting really old is you really, and you do, that I will be forgotten. I, I think everybody, most, put it this way, most writers have their moment and then their work sinks back. Well, it's been and, a fair while, though, for you, hasn't it? I mean... Yeah, but I'm still, you know, doing it. But, but once, yeah. okay, I die. And then there's lots of other people coming up after me and people go, oh, yeah, that was Helen Garner, wasn't she? You know, and that'll sink back down. Like, there's, this, there's a couple of English novelists women novelists who I enormously admire. Um, one of them's called Elizabeth Taylor, nothing to do with the actor, actress. But um, she, her work sank and disappeared completely. Uh, and it was brought back to life by Carmen Khalil when she um, started Virago Press. And I mean, she dug up all this fantastic work, which had somehow just got that little bit gone out of fashion and sank away and people forgot about it. And I mean, you know, what I hope is that, I mean, it'll stop being the fashion to write in, in a, you know, sort of clipped back way. People want, want things to be sort of Baroque and Rococo and with long sprawling sentences. We're going to enter the pirate shirt phase again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, I'm going to just take this opportunity to say that is not right, Helen. You are wrong about that. And well, one I'll of the be dead and I won't even know, so sure, it won't sure, matter. Sure, sure, sure. Wow, you got very whiny. Oh, my knee, etc. But one of the reasons why you're wrong is that your body of work isn't really just restricted, or your significance, I think, is not restricted to X number of articles, X number of novels, X number of um, non-fiction work. The work that you did, and you did it even though you doubted yourself and you felt miserable 80% of the time and you rode around on your bike feeling sorry for yourself and you didn't get prizes. It, it was read by people in this room and hundreds of thousands outside it and they remembered where they were when they read it and how they felt and if they went on to be writers or even readers, they were better observers at the end of reading anything that you had written and they benefited, we all benefited from the work that you put in to go back and go through it again and get rid of some adverbs and make it more taut and make it more muscular and make it more powerful. And that changes people's lives and their ways of looking at the world and that is why I think you don't disappear because Thanks. I'd love it if I didn't disappear. It's not that I want to disappear. It's just that I'd like to, um, you know, sort of muscle up a bit and say, okay, right, I'm going to disappear. Um, and that's okay with me. <laughs> but like be shot into space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, who knows? Well, nobody knows anyway. Nobody knows what's going to last in art. Um, 
So it's, that, this isn't something that, that causes me um, angst. Okay, don't burn any more things, okay. A. Yep, all right. Please. And right. Are, we, are there going to be any more diaries? I don't think so. Oh, come on. But uh, I'll think about it. I've got to... I would like to get an expression of sentiment from this audience. Should there be any more diaries published? Helen, we all know that you would rather be at home with a cup of tea and a book, um, and the fact that you have graciously sat here while we persecute you and talk about you and shine bright lights in your face and put microphones in your face um, means an enormous amount to those of us who have been lucky enough to be here. Thank you, happy birthday, and may you continue to occupy pleasurably the glorious space that you occupy in... Oh, two occupies in one sentence. Shit, I've absolutely <laughs> messed it up. <laughs> Editor, <laughs> I need Garner to run, a, run an eye over that sentence. What I'm trying to say is we love you very much. Thank you for your work and your suffering. And <laughs> happy birthday. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.